Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about waitresses. Although, Caroline, is that term a bit passe in the same way as stewardesses are now referred to as flight attendants? You know, I, I thought about this too. Um, and, and yes, you definitely don't want to call flight attendants stewardesses because I know this because Sally, my mother, is one of those flight attendants. Um, but waitresses, I feel like there's a gray area. Um one thing we read was talking about how uh, waitress is such a passe term that it's it's too focused on gender and feminizing feminizing the profession. But you and I, when we did our episode on uh, women sculptors, called them sculptresses. I don't know. I think it just depends on the context. We have a little bit of distance from having called women sculptors sculptresses, so it's kind of like calling women ladies. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's the gender neutral default of server. Yeah. But honestly, part of me feels a little strange referring to people as servers because it sounds more uh, distinctly servile. Sure. It is the service industry. Yes. Well, it's kind of like actor and actress, that there's still that distinction there, too, and that maybe we're more used to calling them waitresses or actresses when we should be calling them all actors or waiters. Uh, clearly, we need some servers of any gender to weigh in on this. Um, the closest I've gotten to being a waitress, and we're just going to default to waitress for this episode. Well, yeah, because we are talking a lot about gender. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, so it's going to be all waitress from here on out, just like that uh, Carrie Russell film, which I watched so long ago, and I'm never going to see it again. I haven't seen it, and I love Carrie Russell. Was it any good? No. Oh, that really? just hurts me. Do but the closest I've gotten to being Gary Russell in Waitress <laughs> is working as the fry girl at a Chick-fil-A when I was in high school. Really? Oh, my God. I love this mental image of you working the fryer. Oh, wait. I completely forgot. Yes, I have been a server. I worked for a catering company in college. <laughs> I think I just completely blocked that out because it was... Was it that bad? It was a pretty dismal job because at the, the beginning of the night, it was okay. We would work a lot of wedding receptions. Yeah. But as the night progressed and people had more to drink... Mm-hmm. The job became tougher, and it was definitely one of those jobs where drunk men would consistently request me to smile as I'm holding a tray and also wearing a bow tie. And I just wanted to explain to them that that was the last thing I wanted to do would be to smile in a bow tie because... you know, if I had tap shoes on as well, then yeah. then maybe I would do a little song and dance for them. Well, how would you hold the tray steady, though? Well, I'd be that good, Caroline. I'd still be <laughs> holding my tray, doing a little soft shoe. 
No, I mean, I think I think it's the same thing with speaking of stewardesses versus flight attendants. I think it's the same thing. There's that sense of entitlement that this person, this woman is just there for your every whim. My mother has been a flight attendant PS for 46 years. And so she has some stories along those lines. Um, but yeah, I, I think that in any profession where a woman is in a position to serve people, she is frequently subjected to basically sentiments of entitlement. Well, it seems like there's an expectation that she should appear happy while doing so. Yeah, you should be happy to serve me. Don't you want a tip? Caroline, have you ever been a server? No, not in not in any real life capacity. Just in your dreams? <laughs> my dreams. No, my, my family and I, I'm going to be real vague here because I think it'll be funnier. Um, my family and I go to this place, uh, this community on a lake in Michigan every summer, and it has a central dining hall clubhouse type thing. It's very dirty dancing, minus Patrick Swayze and the dancing. And it sounds more culty the way you're describing it. Uh, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, no, I work there as a as a waitress in the summers. What was it like? Um, well, you're just serving families that you know. So like when you mess up, everybody's really understanding and it's all families and they're all they've all known you for a million years. So nobody's there's no like sexual harassment in that job. Uh, well, thank goodness. I know, considering I was like 15. Yeah. So. Although I'm sure that happens oh, yeah. so often. We're actually going to get into that later in the podcast. Something to look forward to. <laughs> huh. um, this got me thinking, though, too, about how a good girlfriend of mine is working as a server at one of the nicest restaurants in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And it is so emotionally taxing for her because the standards are so intense and everyone has a job to do. Like uh, she had a really huge breakthrough at work because she was allowed to serve cheese, you know, present the cheese cart to tables. And I mean, it's, it's to that level where you do get excited if you are deemed appropriate enough to present cheese, but it's like someone comes out and does the chairs and then the napkins and all of the the different courses. But if your friend, so your friend's working at a, at a really nice upscale restaurant, does she face, does she complain about facing sexual harassment the way that maybe friends of yours have faced at less expensive places? No, not at all. The major complaint is the intense standards and how brutal the kitchen environment is, yeah. where if you, where if, say, she's serving cheese and trips and spills cheese on someone's lap. Oh, my God, that's like my heaven. Please spill cheese on me. <laughs> then she would be publicly reprimanded. Oh, wow. Ooh, that's awkward for everyone. Well, by public, I mean, in, you know, in front of other people. It would be known to the rest of the staff that she messed up. Yes. So it's intense. I mean, and I, I would be curious to know from other people working in the restaurant industry out there, if there is that spectrum of high-end hell coming from more from internal standards, mm-hmm. whereas the lower-end diner-style restaurants might face more customer-related yeah. difficulties. Well, it sounds like she's working in a place that puts a premium on service, not necessarily gendered or feminine flirty service. And one thing that we did find out in doing this look into waitressing in general is that it tended to be easier for servers who were in, like, quote-unquote, those gender-neutral jobs where it was just serving, it was just waiting, uh, rather than waitressing. It was easier to resist feelings of subservience and entitlement. Sure, because... In this role of waitress specifically, as obviously we're going to talk about in much greater detail, you're, it's, it's really not so much about the food. Mm-hmm. It's about the presentation. And by presentation, it's your presentation and interaction with all these people, which also too, Caroline, just thinking about it right now, considering my level of introversion, like having to constantly be interacting with other people and earning my money through that, I I can only imagine how exhausting that is. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I am, 
I think I'm a, a nice combo of introversion and extroversion. Uh, real nice combo. Real nice. Real nice combo. Serves me well and poorly all at the same time. Um, I, but I think it would be exhausting, too. Having to, like, put on a face... Uh, smiley face all the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I blocked out, as I mentioned, like five minutes ago, just being a cater waiter in college. Um, well, let's get into not any more of our personal history, but more restaurant history, because we've talked in podcasts past about barmaids, women behind the bar, and, and we've talked uh, around these kinds of emotional labor issues, women getting out in public, and these early occupations that were gradually opened up to women. Yeah, so early in our country's history, um, everybody was sort of pitching in, you could say. And so we had... You know, the bars, the inns, the taverns, the wife and children and daughters were expected to pitch in and and serve the customers. So if we're looking at the early, early history of waitresses, I guess we could trace it back to those early inn owners, daughters, you know, slinging, slinging beers, slinging sliders, slinging sliders, early sliders. Yeah. Yoldie sliders. Um, But the first formal restaurant, uh, in the country is Delmonico's in New York, which opened in 1827. But restaurants and eating out as a thing wouldn't become common until the mid-19th century. People were very like, wait, going outside my home and eating somewhere and paying someone to bring me food? This is so strange. It does feel strange sometimes, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but those first servers at Delmonico's would have been gents, yep. not ladies. Snappily dressed gents. They would have had probably the same type of bow tie you wore as a cater waiter. So I'm just imagining a little Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast running around. Yeah. Yeah. French and on fire. Yeah. Because apparently by 19th century men, my brain imagines just candlesticks. I Yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. That makes it's sense. a strange association, but we'll <laughs> run with it. Um, so, yeah, like Kristen said, it was mostly dudes serving food. That was the standard because, you know, women just weren't leaving the house to work. That was unheard of. And there was a shortage of jobs for candlesticks. Caroline. <laughs> that's right. Don't forget the candlesticks. So so where do we even get waitresses? Where did where did waitresses first emerge? The Wild West. I know, I love it. I love Wild West history. This is coming from a Smithsonian magazine article and Stephen Fried's book, Appetite for America, Fred Harvey and the Business of Civilizing the Wild West One Meal at a Time. That is such a long subtitle. But so who is Fred Harvey? What what's going on? So Fred Harvey was this British entrepreneur who launched the Harvey House restaurant chain in the 1870s. And this whole idea was uh, that there was a railroad line, the Santa Fe Railroad, that ran between Chicago and L.A. And you would have these you know, stops along the way, and there were very few options for people to eat. And people would scam customers at these old-timey train stop, like sandwich shacks, <laughs> Where they would, they would only have a few minutes to dash out of the train, grab a sandwich, but at these early restaurants, pre-Fred Harvey, the proprietors were so evil, they would delay serving food until they knew the train was about to take off. So people wouldn't have time to eat, and they would essentially be like, oh, too bad, and they would not pack it up to go. They would just snag the food and then reserve it to the next batch of customers. Oh, the West. Yeah, talk about Wild West. So basically you had a bunch of jerks moving out West, <laughs> serving people sandwiches almost. That is my hell. Spilling cheese on me is my heaven. <laughs> Snatching a sandwich away from me is my hell, well, Kristen. Well, imagine you'd get the cheese spilled on you perhaps, but then that sir would snatch it back oh, up. no! Take it away. No, once it's on my body, it is mine. I'm sorry. I have to get back to that train. Well, so Harvey's whole vision for this chain of restaurants, which were America's first chain restaurants, by the way, was to offer workers and rail travelers and pioneers the creature comforts that they were lacking in the dusty old frontier. And part of that 
was women. There had always been a few waitresses in uh, Harvey's less hostile frontier locations, places that were not as like, we're going to have shootouts over lunch, um, even including his niece Florence. But it was still thought too dangerous to have vulnerable single women working farther out west. But things would eventually change, and Harvey would eventually replace his majority male servers with women for a couple of reasons, pretty much all of which had to do with uh, trying to exert civilizing forces on the brutish uh, male servers and employees, but also, of course, the male patrons who were shooting up the place. And holdups were common. It was the Wild West, after all. People were getting into brawls, rabble-rousers, and desperados are just Coming into the restaurant, ordering food and refusing to pay. And what are you going to do if you're like a server with a gun in your face? You're like, well, okay, I guess you can have that sandwich. The classic Desperado Dine and Dash. (laughs) I mean, it was wild back then. Yeah, the waiters would also be carrying guns themselves. Everyone's packing heat. Everyone's packing heat. Well, you have to keep in mind, too, that it was super common. There was a lot of racial conflict. It was super common to hire freed slaves, former slaves, out west to be servers, busboys, cooks, that kind of thing. But racism was rampant because not only did you have former slaves moving west, but you had former Confederate soldiers moving west to become cowboys. And everyone wants to get a new lease on life, but that doesn't mean that racism just disappears. And so a lot of the black servers, black male servers, would be packing heat just to protect themselves. And you can imagine that that breeds a lot of tension when everyone is on edge because nobody likes each other. Well, so we get a turning point in Harvey's restaurants when a brawl breaks out among the black male employees at the Raton, New Mexico location. And Harvey ends up firing the whole staff and is like, I'm fed up with this. Like, everybody's fighting. There's all this violence. There's all of this racial tension. I'm not going to have it anymore. And he tasks new manager Tom Gable with saving the day. And Gable in 1883 has a pretty novel solution. Just kick all the black guys out and replace them with white female waitresses. So the solution to racism is to just, you know, kick black men to the curb and give some white ladies some jobs. And that is the uncomfortable chapter of how waitresses emerged in America. Yeah, well, this is a policy that was expanded across Harvey's company, uh, getting rid of any male servers, particularly black male servers, and replacing them with white female waitresses, specifically, though, unmarried women from Kansas. He would provide room and board and good pay in order to secure a civilizing force. So this was a racist policy across the board. You were institutionally firing black men and hiring exclusively white women. Oh, yeah. So if, you know, a black guy gets fired and his wife needs a job, she couldn't pick up the slack because she would not get the job because of the color of her skin. Yeah, exactly. And so they brought in these women from a completely different state who had no families, nothing to, you know, distract them, so to speak. And they didn't have any local ties, so they couldn't get caught up in, like, danger and drama of the Wild West. They were... They were part of this front line of women who were leaving the home, leaving their families or their rural settings and looking for ways to support themselves and also get a little excitement. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, that sort of intentional isolation of not Harvey not wanting to hire local women. But that also speaks to the intensity of their jobs, not to say that you know, serving today is not still very intense, but this was an entire lifestyle because Harvey girls would live together in a dorm with a female chaperone, of course. Bedtime was 11 p.m., except for Friday nights. And they wore out or uniforms, not outfits, uniforms very reminiscent of maids, like upper class maids uniforms. So you would have black and white, no makeup. They also had to sign a contract and the kicker remain unmarried for at least six months. Yeah, and then you got a bonus if you stayed at the end of the six months. If you were you're still there and you're still single, I think you got a bonus. And then if you stayed for the full year, like things started to financially look up for you. And Harvey, like he 
he treated his company, not that you shouldn't, but he treated his company and his restaurants like a machine. I mean, he, he had a hand in everything. He wanted to know at the beginning of every day how many steaks were served, how much bacon did people eat. And so part of that was very much like, I don't care about the blackmail servers. Are they causing trouble? Whether, you know, he's blaming them for causing trouble. Oh, well, will white women come in and be a civilizing force? Well, I don't care about them either. I just want them to be robots serving food in the most efficient way possible. Well, and there was a sexism, too, of assuming women are easier to manage. They have the calming influence and would be, you know, the positive presence for those lonely men. Men would want to come to these restaurants in order to have a little female companionship, at least during one meal. And not to mention that they were very affordable. This is the theme every single time we talk about the feminization of an industry. Women were cheap. I mean, granted, all of their living expenses were paid, but Harvey Girls earned a whopping $17 per month compared to male waiters who would make around $48 per month. But they didn't have to pay their room and board. Mm -hmm. But still, I have a feeling that even with their living expenses factored in, there is a gender wage gap. (laughs) Well, yeah, because there is. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so Tom Gable, uh, talking about this policy much later, said, and that is how I brought civilization to New Mexico. Those waitresses were the first respectable women the cowboys and miners had ever seen. That is, outside of their own wives and mothers. Those roughnecks learned manners. And so there, I mean, you have the the constant and consistent stereotype of woman as nurturer, woman as pure and good, motherly, Virgin Mary influence on rough and hairy men. And these paternalistic uh, rules set in place in order to maintain the respectability of these younger unmarried women working out in the public and interacting directly with men, unmarried or not. And I guess we should say, too, that, and I'm not sure at what point this term comes into use, but the Harvey girls were not called waitresses uh, because waitress was a term that was lowlier than maid at the time. So not a great opinion of these women who were serving food to men. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. So by the turn of the 20th century, women are taking cues from the Harvey girls and entering restaurants in force. So by the late 1800s, early 1900s, they would often take the place 
of male workers on strike. Yeah, so they're basically being scabs, although they're not in unions at this point quite yet. They will be, like, in five minutes from now. Um, but, yeah, they would take the place of male workers because, like Kristen said, they were cheaper. And so by the 1920s and 30s, you have the rise of diners in America. We saw the rise of restaurants 50 years earlier, or 70 years earlier. Uh, and then we get the rise of diners accompanied by the continued rise of female servers. And keep in mind, this is during the Depression. Women would work for lower pay. Employers thought that they could attract male customers, but also make female customers feel more welcome and comfortable in these public dining settings. And even within the context of the Depression, diners were still stable business because going to get a slice of pie at the diner was the affordable luxury that some Mm -hmm. families could still indulge in. Yeah, exactly. Well, so as more and more women do enter the workforce as restaurant workers, as servers and waitresses, they become a major labor force almost right off the bat. This is really neat to see. And a lot of this information is coming from historian Dorothy Sue Cobble. Her name is all over the place in terms of uh, the labor history of women in restaurants. And frankly, it could be its own episode to talk about the labor history of waitresses. Um, But she and several other sources talk about sociologist and undercover waitress Frances Donovan who in 1917 uh, she embeds secretly with a bunch of waitresses and writes a book about it and she describes these groups of women as saying here we have a feminist movement and ideals embodied in a class so that should set the tone that these women are not to be messed with and on that same note waitress unions start emerging in the early 20th century and and really what made them strong was that most of these women were working full time year-round, and they also saw their work as vital to supporting their families, or if they were single, supporting themselves. And there was, too, this this push for dignity in the work that they did. Um, in the same way as if, if you talk to professional servers today, like career waiters or waitresses, they saw what they did, not just as slinging food, but as a true craft. Yeah, they consider themselves to be craftswomen, that this whole job, it's not just like uh, an assembly line of putting sandwiches together, which is an amazing assembly line. Um, they were literally like, no, I have to perform for you. And this is something you hear from waitresses and waiters today. Like, I have to put on a smile. I have to act the part, act correctly to make you feel comfortable. I've got to bring out the food in just such a way. I have to anticipate every need. And so they're really putting together this performance in order to make the customer happy and comfortable. And as one of those customers... It's so apparent when you do have someone who is a legit, like, craftsperson server because oh, yeah. it does make a difference in the entire dining experience of, of making you not only enjoy what you're eating a little bit more, but feel special while it's happening. Yeah, we all like to feel a little special. Which is why I love McDonald's. <laughs> I always take care of me. You are loving it. So these unions were mainly concerned with helping members advance economically and controlling workplace conditions. And many also had benefit funds to help when women got sick and provide money to the closest relative when a member died. They were really trying to fill that gap that existed in helping support women workers. But in the early 1900s, men weren't exactly super helpful with these waitresses organizing. Like some would join co-ed local unions, but they often would have to form their own because their male co-workers would ignore them. Um, they were also patronizing moral reform and progressive era groups that were stymieing these women getting together and um, advocating on their own behalves. Yeah, basically trying to speak for them like, oh, you poor helpless woman who's having to work in these terrible conditions. Let me tell you how to live your life. And there were also, frankly, a lot of internal divisions among the women working in restaurants. I mean, that's no surprise. People are different. But these divisions were based on marital status, race, socioeconomics, uh, some other obstacles to women waitresses organizing and achieving what they wanted were feuds with employers who either underestimated them and or just did not 
care about the people working for them. A tale as old as time. A tale as old as time. Kristen just keeps making uh, Beauty and the Beast references. Not even meaning to. I don't know <laughs> where this is coming from in my brain, although I'm a little concerned now, to be honest. Well, we'll have to have a movie night. Um, but yeah, so they, these women were a powerful force and it's, it's really cool to read about because so often we just talk about <laughs> how terrible everything is for women and not that it wasn't terrible and that these women didn't have to experience awful conditions and terrible customers and things like that, but they really form this incredible force of workers. Well, and this echoes to our podcast a while back on how teaching became women's work. You have a similar kind of thing of those first women teachers organizing and advocating for themselves. So back to waitresses, in 1901, the San Francisco Union pushed for a 10-hour workday down from uh, a way more than 10-hour workday. Um, and you had more employers going along with the 1902 Waitress Wage Scales and Working Agreement to employ union members only, grant a six-day work week, and pay $8 a day and $9 a night. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing very quickly after the formation of these women's only uh, waitress unions, employers starting to be like, oh, God, uh, oh, okay, well, you, you guys are, are allowed, so I, I'll give you some stuff. But uh, some other highlights are, like in 1902, over just a few months, the Chicago Waitress Union in particular went from 41 to 1,500 members, and they were led by uh, Shiro, Elizabeth Maloney, who successfully demanded more pay and fewer hours. And Maloney is credited with saying, I think a girl should be entitled to live decently Recently and properly and enjoy some of the things in life that her employer wants his children to have. And when those employers sort of stood in their way, these waitress unions would fight back. Uh, for instance, in 1908, after waitresses won a wage and hour concessions in Seattle, which, by the way, these were among the first waitress unions, Restaurant owners refused to go along with it and proposed a return to working seven days a week. Good grief. Um, but all waitresses but one struck in solidarity, forcing employers back down after just 12 hours. Yeah. The, the employers were all just going like, oh, geez, this is these women have opinions. This is terrifying. Well, I mean, who's going to serve their food? Who's yeah. going to create that welcoming environment for customers without them? Exactly. And in 1912, workdays were legally limited to 10 hours, though waitresses typically still worked longer hours. And moving forward uh, in time, just a little bit, waitress unions were weakened somewhat by defections. A lot of them left for co-ed hospitality type unions, but they rebounded during and after World War One, thanks to things like the feminization of food service work and also the fact that co-ed unions tilted more female as male participation waned amid prohibition, because keep in mind that wiped out male-dominated bartending. But one, one little downside of this, a little more racism for you. A lot of these unions restricted membership to white women only until the 1930s. So women of color were encouraged to form their own unions or join existing ones. Yeah, and another uncomfortable little blip in uh, waitress union history was that a lot of white waitresses were discouraged from working at, for instance, Chinese restaurants. There was a lot of hostility out west, particularly toward Asian business people. And so... The unions took a very uncomfortable stance there. Wait, so what is the discomfort that white women couldn't take those jobs? Why? Because they weren't wanted there? No, well, the unions, the white, the whites only unions did not want their members working at Asian run establishments. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. Probably still does. Um, but we've talked a lot about this organizing within these early groups of waitresses. But now let's talk about the perceptions of waitresses, like how we culturally view them. So public perception wise, the biggest risk, it seems like, of being a waitress in the early 20th century was that you would be seen as a prostitute. 
Yeah, that whole cultural perception of, oh, a woman's working outside the home for money? She's a prostitute. Well, and interacting with men. Yeah, she's prostituting herself, but she's also vulnerable because, you know, women are helpless. They can't do anything to protect themselves or make their own decisions. And this is a concept, if you've read uh, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson or uh, Sin in the Second City by Karen Abbott, these are all focused in that whole progressive era in Chicago. You've got more women moving to cities and women being preyed upon by evil men looking to sell them into prostitution and things like that. Women coming to the city with all of these ideals, like I'm going to make something of myself and be independent, and then they end up working in a brothel. Not that that didn't happen, but this was like a huge cultural fear around this time. The panic of white slavery, particularly. Yes, exactly. And so... At the same time, you've got women going into restaurants and people are panicking about that. So in 1912, Chicago's Juvenile Protective Association issues a report claiming that girls, of course, because we can't call them women, uh, took this waitressing work because, hey, it doesn't require any skill. It includes meals and it's exciting because that's all women care about. It's just a little bit of excitement but that they could stand the hard work, heavy trays, sore feet, and rude men for just a couple of years before they burned out. And so they point out that waitresses, they state this as fact, that waitresses had no hope for a bright future, that they lacked support systems and what the uh, report writers considered to be a home, and that many were escaping, like we said, uh, maybe bad family situations or rural homes to come to the big city. So you get all of these tales of the beleaguered, overworked, underpaid waitress falling prey to some man's advance, some some man who will come and say, oh, you've worked a double shift, you're on your break, you need somewhere to lie down, you can come to my place. In a brothel. <laughs> yeah, in but, a brothel. But the fact of the matter was, though, the beleaguered and overworked and underpaid part seems pretty on point, considering that these women were being expected to work seven days a week for at least 10 hours a day. At least. Yeah, at least. But it's interesting how tacked on to that, it's the assumption that that makes them vulnerable to sex, essentially. As opposed to just looking at looking at it all realistically and realizing, like, yes, there are probably women who want to hang out with dudes on their break. There are some women who don't. Some women just want to lie down in the basement, like, or rather than improving working conditions, <laughs> blaming it on women for doing it to themselves, inviting this kind of sin potentially into their lives. That's right. And so a lot of it ties into social fears about women who weren't falling in line with domestic expectations. Why are you coming into the big city to get a job when you should be coming into the big city to become a wife? So back to that undercover sociologist we mentioned in the first half of the show, Frances Donovan, who's in Chicago working as a waitress in 1917. She was similarly judgmental about this whole thing. Um, she wrote about women who, quote, failed to realize her ideal of domesticity and fanned fears of women resorting to, quote, semi-prostitution and would end up getting abortions. Yeah, she said something like the all-too-common solution of getting an abortion or something to that effect. That, like, fa- Yeah, fanning those fears about women being on their own in the big city. And she was, this was a woman who was super hung up on sex, by the way. Here's how she described uh, women getting jobs in restaurants. She says, restaurants want women who are young and good-looking. The advertisements announce it and most managers insist on it. For the most part, the girl who is good-looking has her pick of the jobs. For everywhere, the waitress is playing a game. It is this which makes her life, hard as it is, fascinating to her. It is a woman's game, the sex game. And of course, we should keep in mind, too, that Donovan, during her undercover days as a waitress, was scandalized by the staff's sexual banter and joking. Women who would be either joking with each other, being all bawdy and, you know, joking about their male co-workers, or women and men joking among themselves. She was, she thought that this was so dirty, she almost had to, like, lie down and fan herself. She couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that Frances pulled off being an undercover server. Well, she didn't. In uh, one of the sources we were looking at that talked about Frances, um, she was totally pinpointed by a couple of women. A lot of women were sympathetic every time she got fired because she was a terrible waitress because she was a sociologist. Uh, I'm not saying sociologists can't be waitresses, but you know what I mean. Uh, but a couple of 
at some of the places she worked, a couple of the older, uh, more experienced waitresses were like, I've got your number. You better not let any of these other broads figure you out. Although she was a far more progressive mind, this whole Francis Donovan undercover waitress incident reminds me of Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dimed, where she goes around the country working undercover in these blue collar, essentially female dominated sectors. So she is a waitress at one point. I think she works at Waffle House for a while and she gets a job at Walmart um, and she's a maid, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a hard time getting through the book because I listened to the audiobook where she was reading it. Mm-hmm. And there were times when she came across very Francis donovan of, oh, these poor women. And I'm just and, and she would take breaks and go back to her far more comfortable upper middle class life, Mm -hmm. wherein at one point she bemoans uh, failing a drug test. I think maybe it was when she was getting a job at Walmart because when she was in her break in her real life, she decided she just needed to smoke some weed just to relax. I was like, this is, no, you're, this feels so classist. Yeah. And I know a lot of listeners have read this book and it's, it's an important book, but I think it's interesting to see how those class tensions are still so apparent because this job has been respectable for women, but only women of a certain lower income level. It's always Mm -hmm. been kind of looked down upon. We've pitied waitresses historically, it seems like. Yeah, I I think so too. And I mean, speaking of pay, it's interesting to see that there were divisions among waitresses too when it came to pay and tips because women who at this time were working in places that served alcohol obviously this is pre-prohibition were viewed as lower class by their fellow waitresses who worked in in dry establishments and in restaurants as opposed to places that had bars and it's part of that interesting dynamic around earning tips Uh, that Chicago Juvenile Protective Association report had found that waitresses in general in general across the board were looked down upon by society at large for accepting tips it goes back to those ideas of like women accepting money for for work. So it's interesting that women who worked at dry establishments would look down on women who earned higher tips at places that served alcohol because you have to wonder like is this just internalized are they internalizing the views of society at large? Is this a little bit of internalized fear or conflict or misogyny when they're looking at their fellow waitresses and being like, well, you're lower class because you serve alcohol and make more money? Well, yeah, I think that that's absolutely going on. But there's still the, that gendered ceiling within this whole thing, because it's not like women who are waitresses could necessarily climb any kind of ladder. I mean, yeah. guys would be the managers. Men would be the business owners. Um, can I go off on a brief tangent about Mildred Pierce? Oh, please. Okay. So some of these sources, Caroline, cited the 1945 film adaptation of the novel Mildred Pierce. And it stars Joan Crawford. And listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's one of the best film noir examples out there. And it was more recently adapted into an HBO miniseries starring Kate Winslet. I've seen it as well. I prefer the movie. But anyway, so the whole thing is about how Mildred Pierce, the title character, is in post-World War II America. Her husband cheats on her and she basically, or and he leaves. And so she's left single mom with two kids. What's she going to do? She eventually becomes a waitress, but she has to keep it a secret mm. from her daughter, Veda, because she looks down at it, on it so much because it's seen as something that's only appropriate for lower class women to do. And then she climbs the ladder and ends up opening her own restaurant, becomes very successful. But the whole thing is framed as this cautionary tale of women violating that domestic role. So it's okay Mm -hmm. for us to serve the food. But if you own the restaurant, then you are a woman out of line. Well, yeah, I mean, that's also post-World War II when men are coming back from the war to regain their position as men, manly men, heads of the household. Women get out of those factory jobs, get back to the house. So, yeah, I'm sure a piece of pop culture, essentially, that features a woman in a publicly money-making 
successful role was super threatening. Yeah, and it's also, too, in that era where we get that classic image of the waitress in Mm -hmm. that diner uniform, and she might be chewing gum, she's got her little pad, she's happy enough to see you. And it's just kind of interesting to think of all of those cultural forces combined, which leads us up to today where it seems like we haven't progressed that much in the position of waitresses at large. Well, certainly not with pay. No. (laughs) Certainly not with pay. Yeah, we're about to get into some super depressing stats from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and a story over at CNN offering a little perspective. So as of May 2014, 2.4 million waiters and waitresses in the United States were earning an average of 10.40 an hour. That sounds all right. 10.40 an hour? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That does not sound like a living wage at all. But it sounds a lot better than their actual wage for a lot of them. So waitresses are tipped employees. That's a category, meaning they're among the 3.3 million Americans in 42 states who earn the federal minimum hourly wage of $2.13 and depend on tips for the rest of their income in order to meet the $7.25 federal minimum wage bar for all workers. So suddenly that $10.40 is sounding a little bit better. But, you know, this country has had a lot of wrangling recently over the minimum wage. And I shouldn't say recently. I should say always. Um, but none of that wrangling really includes tipped workers, people who they have a base salary, but then they earn tips on top of it. The restaurant industry for a long time has painted these people as like, they're fine. They're just complainers. They make all of this money on top of their base salary. So we don't have to fight the minimum wage fight for them. So that 213 figure has remained static since 1991, which my jaw dropped to my desk when I read that. Well, yeah, I kept I read that and I thought there's no way there's no way that this is still accurate. But I, you know, (laughs) I'm looking at current statistics. Yes. Yes. Siri. And she was like, yeah, it's still messed up. (laughs) I would love if she replied that way. And technically, if waitresses earn less than that 725 an hour bar, employers are supposed to make up the difference with what's called a tip credit to raise them up. But so many people don't do that. A 2010 to 2012 Department of Labor investigation found that nearly 84 percent of restaurants in this country were guilty of some type of wage and hour violation. More than 1,100 of those cases involved tip credit. So they found that 5.5 million dollars in back wages was owed to workers. In other words, this is a quick PSA to our listeners. Tip your servers. Yeah, none of this, none of this thing that, that your angry podcasters here have heard about, about writing like LOL or I only tip my church in the tip line. Like none of that. If you can't afford to tip your server, you can't afford to go out to eat. Exactly. And tip them well because tipped workers are more likely to live in poverty. And statistics on people earning the federal minimum wage or below In general, nearly half of those people are in food preparation and serving. Half of them also, I mean, they're pretty young. They're 16 to 24 years old. 77% of them are white, surprisingly. Um, Nearly half of them are white women, and they're more likely to live in the South. Yeah, so this is a situation where it's hard for people to break out of. If you can't save enough money to pay your bills or buy things for your children or go to the doctor, like how are you supposed to climb out of that? Oh, and consider too how, you know, the benefits, I'm sure, for being a server are, are not handsome. No, they're non-existent. And uh, when I lived in Augusta, Georgia, there was one restaurant that um, a few of my friends and acquaintances worked at, like several of them, because it was known that the owners provided certain benefits that were above, way above and beyond what any other restaurant in the area provided. So people were actually able to go to the doctor and have a life while they were working as waiters and waitresses. But what I was curious to learn more about is when it comes to those tipped waiters who do make good money, like my friend, for instance, who's working in one of the best restaurants in Atlanta, she's making a good wage. Mm -hmm. She's pretty comfortable 
as a server right now. So what kinds of things get you into those jobs? Because one, one source that I wanted but couldn't find was on the demographics of people in those higher end jobs. Because I have a feeling a lot of them look a lot alike. And by that, I mean not very diverse. I have a feeling we have a lot of white people out in those well-paying hosting and serving jobs and people of color are still in the kitchen. Well, and in terms of diversity, there's probably a certain look that goes along with it, too, in terms of just hiring based on conventional attractiveness. Yeah, there was a study that came out in August 2015 in the Journal of Economic Psychology, which found, not surprisingly at all, that conventionally attractive waitresses earn more than $1,200 per year more in tips. And it's not just old fellas coming in and uh, tipping the waitress a little <laughs> bit more. It's almost also women, female customers, tipping attractive women more than unattractive women. Yeah, and so the authors cite the stereotype of beautiful people being seen as more capable. So it's interesting, though, that it's women driving the trend more than men. Although, when you look at other things that make up what people consider attractive, it does have a lot more to do with tips coming from men. So women who wear makeup, specifically lipstick, earned more tips from men. This is coming from a set of studies in the International Journal of Hospitality Management. They found that lipstick, red in particular, ladies was linked with men but not women tipping more. The authors credit an increase in perceived attractiveness and femininity of those women wearing red lipstick. So goth servers with black lipstick, not going to work? The lipstick effect, not the same? Not the same. Not the same. But, of course, um, we have to discuss the issue of diversity, which Kristen mentioned. Who earns less across the board? Black servers. This is a study in sociological inquiry from 2014. They surveyed people about their dining experience, what they tipped, how they felt about their server, and survey respondents generally viewed their black servers more favorably, but both black and white patrons tipped those black servers less. Come on, people. Tip your servers. Tip them handsomely, whether they're wearing red lipstick or not. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, It's such a mess, and I wonder with all of this tip structure that has cheated, and consistently it seems like it's cheating servers out of at least a steady, reliable income, Mm -hmm. how that looks for a career server, say, in Europe, where you don't tip. You know, everything is built into what you pay for your food. I mean, I wonder if it's more equitable in places... That where the tipping structure is not there. I mean, yeah, that means that you can't get that random $500 tip, but that means that you might know what to expect to take home and not have to be like, well, let me put on this red lipstick and a blonde wig and lose some weight and then maybe I'll get some more cash. Well, the whole appearance thing is part of playing this game that we've always had. I mean, going the to- sex game, Francis Donovan's sex game, the sex game and jollies. We're about to get into jollies. Ooh. Get your jollies. Yeah, so back in 1917, a waitress told old Francis Donovan, you can't get along in any kind of restaurant unless you jolly the customers. Certainly the customers look for the jolly. Many times it is simply friendly and innocent, but quite as often the man starts to deliberately explore. The busier the waitress is, the greater her difficulties, the more impatient and clamorous become the men. And similarly, a 1993 study, decades later, after this, you know, server is talking about looking for the jollies, um, a study in work and occupations found waitresses in particular perform gendered scripts to provide good service. So it's easier to resist subservience in performing the flirt role in restaurants where work is classified as waitering rather than waitressing because you take that gendered layer out of it to some degree. And of course, speaking of subservience and clamoring men, this is the part of the podcast where we get to sexual harassment. 
Waitresses have reported that sexual harassment from customers is common. It's part of the job. And sometimes it's even ingrained in the actual restaurant culture itself, whether it's outright or ambiguous, which, of course, when somebody's like, no, I was just complimenting you. Why are you taking it so personally? It's harder to fight that kind of stuff when it's just so insidious. When you're working at Hooters. And when you're working at Hooters. Which is why the next podcast episode is going to be all about restaurants. That's right. I know. Stay tuned. But so a 2014 report from the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United found that the dynamics of women restaurant workers living off tips, which forces them to rely on customers for their income rather than, than their employer, forces them to tolerate behavior that they wouldn't normally tolerate. And so they write, this dynamic contributes to the restaurant industry status as the single largest source of sexual harassment claims in the United States. And research links this prevalence of sexual harassment with the very nature of the work. So there was one study, for instance, that we found from 2008 in the journal Sociological Viewpoints that looked at sexual harassment in the context of waitressing and nursing because the authors suggest that both waitresses and nurses perform work that replicates traditional gender roles, that kind of emotional labor, you know, food service, uh, all that kind of stuff. Although I guess, well, I guess there's some food service and nursing. Um, but they tie that to something called the sexual spillover theory, um, which basically maintains that you have sexual harassment occurring more often in jobs where people expect workers to be available as sex objects. So the customers kind of expect a little flirting and teasing and maybe even touching to be part of the whole job. Yeah. And so you're serving me, you're caring for me, you're being flirty. Uh, so naturally, I'm just going to take advantage of that, basically. Um, Donovan would totally disapprove of any of this going on. And the authors also point out that ideas about sexuality of the role and sexual access to waitresses is perpetuated by their expendability because waitresses are viewed as expendable, that another one will always come along to fill the job. Many might feel that they have to play this game and be okay with harassment because they lack the leverage or the secure job position to fight back. And so many in this study, many waitresses in the study reported that they felt trapped by the work culture and expectations of both the employer and the customer. Yeah, because it's not just risk posed by grab handy customers. You also have issues of the restaurant hierarchy with male employees and managers using sexual harassment sort of as a tool over these women, because a lot of these women, too, you know, they are in this lower income job. They need that money. They can't afford to get fired. So they might have to put up with this kind of treatment from their bosses. So does this then totally blow feminism out of the water? Can you be someone who's basically putting up with sexual harassment and just taking it with a smile and still be a feminist? This was... Yes. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yes, of course. But this is something that Brittany Bronson, who is a waitress who wrote a New York Times op-ed in April of this year, 2015, really struggles with. Yeah, so she... I think she's an adjunct professor somewhere, which is a code word for doesn't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And she works as a higher-end sounds like cocktail server on the side and she encounters a sexually charged banter even on the lighter side constantly and it's horribly demeaning and it's really part of the job you know i mean she she cites men directly asking her to come home with them Yeah, and so she writes about how she has to suppress her natural reaction in favor of a good tip because she writes that some days I just feel like my rent is more important than all of my ideals about the gender wage gap and about feminism. And so she talks about how having that job in Vegas in particular is is even worse, she she posits, because Vegas, it's the whole thing of like, what happens in Vegas stays.
stays in Vegas. I might be a nice guy the rest of the time, but I'm here, and so I get to do whatever I want. My family's not here. Well, it sounds like part of that sexual spillover theory, where there's the assumption that, oh, well, this is part of the job. You look attractive. You are in perhaps a tight dress, and you're serving me. So why shouldn't I be able to flirt with you or outright harass you or even, as she talks about, stalk you? I mean, mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's a, the real intense side of this, too, is that it happens off the clock as well. Yeah. And so she then talks about because she's struggling with this whole thing of like, oh, am I a bad feminist, so to speak, because I'm taking money from people and being harassed at the same time. And that leads her to talk about some of her coworkers who say, no, it's empowering. I'm taking advantage of these men's like sexual appetites and being gross, because if I smile and make them feel good, they're giving me money. So I get to take money from them and feel superior to them in the process. Well, I think it's challenging to make a blanket statement about all of this just because there are so many different segments of serving. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that life as a cocktail waitress in Las Vegas is wildly different than working at a Chili's in Buffalo. You know, um, you, you will probably encounter far different working environments, but it's pretty clear that there is a lot of gendered baggage in this entire profession for women and that perhaps because it has been so dominated by women and really fraught with class issues as well, that we there hasn't been this societal push to improve their working conditions. We take Mm -hmm. them for granted. I mean, these women are very much often on the lower rungs socioeconomically, so they're sort of held hostage to it. Yeah, I remember when we did, Kristen, our Lean In series about women in the workplace, we did hear from some of our listeners who work in the service industry, whether they're waitresses or or some other position, and they were saying, like, cool, that's great work advice, but, like, I don't live that kind of life. Like, I don't, you know, it's not between should I have children and hire a nanny? You know, do I want to give up my shot at the corner office? It's like my life is very much more day-to-day than that. And honestly, I don't have any answers to it because I remember being the hourly worker not terribly long ago, and even when working conditions, thankfully I never encountered sexual harassment in any of the places when I worked, but for instance, with that cater waiter job, like I needed that money. It was actually like pretty good money to make in a college town. And even though there was a lot of humiliation that went along with it, mm-hmm. I needed the paycheck. So it's, I mean, what, what's, what do you do? Well, I don't know. I don't know either. It's just distressing that in this country where we have this mythology around bootstraps, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, poor people are poor because it's their fault. Like those two things don't, they don't match. You do have someone like a, maybe a single mom who's waitressing to make sure that her daughter has what she needs, which is uh, that CNN story, for instance, that we cited earlier. It's about a single mom doing just that. Um, and she's working her butt off every day just to scrape by. And so this is what, I mean, she's doing what all these people are saying Americans should do. They should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work really hard, but it's not getting her anywhere. I mean, I guess the bright side of it is that you do have employers who recognize this and who are making more efforts to provide things like benefits, like that restaurant that you mentioned, um, and provide living wages and are getting a lot of positive press attention mm-hmm. from that. And you also have more local and state governments who are proposing and implementing living wages for these kinds of hourly workers because it's just such an untenable situation, especially when you throw motherhood into into that mix. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that there are a lot of folks listening to this who can absolutely relate. You might be listening to this podcast on a shift break. And we want to hear from you because you're so right to bring up the lean in conversation because it leaves so many people out who might want to get to the point where lean in is relevant, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, we need, we need the, the thing before you can even be in a position to lean in. We, we need to, pay our citizens a pay in a we living need to pay in. we need to pay and we need to pay 
the people who live in this country a wage that they can live on. And one way that we can pitch in just just a little bit to that is tipping your servers, your baristas, whoever it is. Yeah. Tip them. Remember this episode and please tip. So with that, we want to hear your tips. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, Kristen and I have two letters here about our by Philippe uh, dude rejection episode. Uh, this one's from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. Uh, she says, first, there's a great blog and Instagram called Feminist Tinder, which started to show the backlash the founder faced simply because she has the word feminist and nothing else on her Tinder account. She posts a lot of that backlash as well as the nastiness that results when she rejects a guy's sexual advances. I'd highly recommend you check it out. Second, while I agree that most of the time the only no a guy will take for an answer is I have a boyfriend, fiance, husband, as a married woman with a wedding ring, about 30 to 50% of the time, guys at bars and other places will not leave me alone even when I say I have a husband or I lift my hand. A few months ago, I was at a party at a friend's of a friend's house and a guy would not leave me alone for hours and kept trying to like touch me or compliment me or whatever even after I said I had a husband and even after the hostess told him I was happily married. I think it bothered me more than usual because it wasn't a stranger in a bar, but a person within my social circle, so I guess I expected more civilized behavior on his part. Keep up the great work. And, yeah, I'm sorry, anonymous listener. That that sounds rough. Well, I've got a letter here from M, and her tale is very reminiscent of the Ben Shane Grace Spellman story that we shared in that By Philippe episode. So, M writes, When I first moved to a neighborhood, I met a guy online who lived in the area. He was very funny in person, but I wasn't interested. I told him how I felt, and he seemed to accept it and invited me to meet his friends the following week. But as soon as I arrived, I discovered that he didn't take no for an answer. Sad boy figured I would have to go along with it when all of his friends were there. I realized that the only way to get him away from me without making a scene was to chat up one of his friends, which worked. As soon as another man gave me attention, he immediately stopped, unlike when I had told him myself that I wasn't interested. Turns out, Rescue Boy and I started seeing each other, and Sad Boy wasn't happy. He tried getting his friends to ignore me, he refused to speak to me in public, and even sent me a huge ranting text about his wounded pride and how he never tried to hit on me. I worked pretty hard to make peace with it, but when the news about the BuzzFeed writer came out, she's referencing Grace Spellman listeners, the sad boy immediately put on his feminist hat and started criticizing the creep. The hypocrisy was staggering, and I realized that this is his strategy for girls. He puts on this big public display of feminism as an armor for when actual women call him out on his creepy behavior. I can't be sexist because I made a pro-feminist tweet today. Because of Sad Boy, I really have a strong side-eye for self-proclaimed feminist males. So often I see that they use it to manipulate women into falling for their Sad Boy ruse and then revert back to the same sexism they're supposedly against. Oh, what a complicated web we weave. Keep your letters coming, friends. I will say, Caroline, almost as soon as we hit publish on that Bye Philippe episode, the letters came a-rolling in. Mom stuff at How Stuff Works is where you can send us yours. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources so you can learn more about the history of waitressing, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. 
Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.